Welcome to the Shadows of Noir podcast, a place for movie fans to discover, learn, and discuss all things film noir. My name is Dan, and I am a classic film fanatic with a longtime passion for the complex world of film noir. I'll be your main guide for this show and our accompanying website that you can find online at shadowsofnoir.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode five, and wishing everybody a very happy holiday season out there. This episode's going to be airing in late December 2023. And sticking with the holiday season, thought it would be a good opportunity to talk about the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Now, It's a Wonderful Life is certainly one of the most famous U.S.-made films of all time. It has touched the hearts of millions of people, perhaps even billions. It has provided a wonderful holiday tradition for countless families where they can sometimes put aside some trivial issues that they may be having uh, around the holidays and celebrate the time they have with loved ones. And it is largely viewed as an inspirational film, a celebration of life. In fact, the American Film Institute has a 100 years, 100 cheers list in which they rank the 100 most inspiring films of all time. And It's a Wonderful Life has the incredible distinction of topping that list as the most inspirational film made in the U.S. So why in the world would we be talking about something that is viewed this way on a film noir podcast where we're talking about films of cynicism and pessimism in dangerous places with devious characters and underhanded motives. Why would we be discussing one of the, if not the, most inspirational film ever made? Well, in short, it's because there is noir in It's a Wonderful Life and I think any noir enthusiast or avid uh, noir fan will be able to point out the segment of the film that is very much in the grips of film noir's territory, but also to take a little bit of an opportunity to talk about the power of film noir, at least the power that we here at Shadows of Noir feel that noir has. And just a fair warning to actually to go on our usual warning that this is a very deep dive on the film and it will include spoilers. But beyond that warning is a little bit of a uh, more lighthearted warning that this discussion will certainly have a little bit of film theory, film philosophy in it, a um, little bit of personal perspective. Um, some parts that may not be historic facts or even established uh, commonly held theories about film noir, but uh, just a little bit of what we think here in terms of the power of film noir and why it is so evident when you watch It's a Wonderful Life. And since so many people are going to be watching it in the next few weeks or so, uh, we thought it would be a great time to discuss it. And so we will begin by just talking about the background of the film, giving everybody a little bit of a setup, uh, go through what happens in the film. We're going to really take a magnifying glass in on the noir piece of 
It's a Wonderful Life. And then we are going to talk about what that means and why it is largely, in our eyes, a microcosm of what film noir can do for somebody who enjoys watching movies. So let's get into it. So It's a Wonderful Life was released in 1946. It was directed by Frank Capra. It was the first production of Liberty Films, which was recently created by Frank Capra, also with producer Sam Driskin and other major directors, William Wyler and George Stevens, who were very interested in creating this entity so that they would have more creative freedom and independence over their projects. So this was the first production, and they were essentially renting out, I guess you could say, the uh, the facilities of RKO, and um, RKO ended up distributing the film, and uh, they used the long-established infrastructure that RKO had in terms of distribution to try and get it out there. So came out in December 1946. It stars... James, a.k.a. Jimmy Stewart, Donna Reed, Lionel Barrymore, veteran character actor Thomas Mitchell, Henry Travers, Frank Phelan, Beulah Bondi, Ward Bond, H.B. Warner, Frank Albertson, Todd Carnes, and the future noir queen Gloria Graham. It is based on, or at least it started as, the short story The Greatest Gift, which was written by Philip Van Doren Stern, which also has a Christmas connection to it. And just take a quick note here, because it is a very interesting story if you haven't heard it. So Philip Van Doren Stern wrote this short story, and he really couldn't get anybody to be too interested in it. So what he did was he printed it out, I believe somewhere around 200 copies or so, and included it in Christmas cards when he sent it to his family and friends. And one of the people he sent it to was his agent, who then sent it over to RKO or presented it in some way so that RKO purchased the story. And they paid $10,000 for this story in 1943. And if I recall correctly, I think there was some plan to have it be a Cary Grant movie at one point. But it actually ended up going to three different famous writers, and they each kind of put their own spin on it, changed things in a little bit different way. Writers Mark Connolly, Clifford Odets, and Dalton Trumbull all touched the script. But by 1945, there really wasn't much of a plan for it, and RKO ended up selling the story and the three attempted scripts to Frank Capra, who had just returned from being a colonel in World War II, making wartime documentaries for the War Department. So that happened in September 1945, and in fairly short time, Capra pitched the idea to Jimmy Stewart, and Jimmy Stewart signed on to play the lead of George Bailey. Jimmy Stewart also having been away for several years as part of the U.S. Armed Forces in World War II. So this was his first picture back, as well as Capra's first picture after the war. Frank Capra ended up updating slash rewriting the script uh, along his vision. He did have the assistance of other writers, Albert Hackett and Francis Goodrich, who were actually the two that earned the screen credit for writing along with Capra. And 
Eventually, Frank Capra was happy with the script and the cast had been assembled and it went into production. 70 consecutive days of shooting. It was um, not a very rosy, perfect production, Um, especially there was tension between Capra and some of the other contributors to the film. Dimitri Tiomkin, for example, Um, there were arguments over the writing credits, as I said. Jimmy Stewart also had quite a bit of rust, not having been in front of the camera for a few years, and was nervous about his delivery, remembering lines, uh, and a few other things. He ended up getting a talk from veteran actor Lionel Barrymore and some encouragement, which uh, he said afterwards really helped him get in the right frame of mind to complete the picture. But of course, the production did conclude, and the film was completed, and it ended up hitting theaters in December 1946 in L.A. and New York, and it was done that way so that it could be considered for the 1946 Academy Awards. Ultimately, it was nominated for five Oscars and won zero, as actually RKO really leaned in and pushed for another production that came out in 1946, The Best Years of Our Lives, also a phenomenal film. But that ended up taking most of the uh, Academy Award gold that year, and It's a Wonderful Life came up empty. And along with striking out at the Academy Awards, the public reception and the critical response for its initial release was, I think you could say pretty muted. It wasn't a flop by any means, but it certainly didn't break any records either. Actually, it was found to be a little bit too depressing for a holiday movie. And there is our early indication of the noir connection right there. But I think you could also make the argument that the Christmas aspect of the film is really only a small piece It's not two hours of Christmas, 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 but nonetheless, that was the timing of the release. That was the association very early on, and of course, that is the long-lasting legacy that it has now, especially with the playing on television, and that gets us into the next piece, which was it fell out of sight, really, after its original release. But because of a filing error in the early 1970s, it fell into the public domain when the copyright was not renewed. And that is where it first started to get picked up by television stations who were able to play it without any need to pay royalties. And it showed up so much that its popularity was able to grow and grow until it became what it is today. And with that backstory, which I hope was interesting if you hadn't heard it before, uh, if you had, hopefully you might have even picked up on a few other things. I certainly did when I was researching everything for this episode. But now we can move into what actually happens in the film. So right after the opening credits, which, by the way, do have a Christmas theme to them, they are fashioned as Christmas cards. But after the opening credits, we get a zoom in on a small town called Bedford Falls and a few different shots of businesses, people's homes, and you get some audio of people praying for this person named George Bailey, who seems to be in some trouble. And quickly, the fantasy aspect of the movie comes into play as we kind of 
pan up to heaven almost, and we get several angels that are talking about this unfortunate fellow named George Bailey, who, of course, is played by Jimmy Stewart, uh, but what is going on in his life and why he needs help. So, summoning the unwinged, I don't know if that a word or not, um, the unwinged angel, uh, angel second class, as he's uh, officially uh, titled later on, uh, Clarence, who is played by Henry Travers, he comes along and is asked to go down to Earth and help out this unfortunate man named George Bailey. And if he does a good job helping out George Bailey, he will earn his wings as an angel. And from there, with the very uh, unusual and interesting um, framing device of having the angels teaching Clarence all about George Bailey's life, we get a glimpse into him as a boy and as he's grown up over the years in this small town of Bedford Falls. And we see that from a young age, George Bailey is an aspirational kind of person. He wants to go out, build things. He wants to be important. He wants to make important things. He wants to get out of this small town called Bedford Falls, which, uh, quick side note, I did not realize this until researching that the Bedford Falls set was actually constructed on the RKO Ranch. It, it was completely constructed for this film. It was one of the longest sets that was made for a film. And I believe it almost was maybe even like four acres total once it was completed. So really a grand, grand production set for a picture in 1946. But back to the story. So we begin in the year 1919 when I want to say George is probably about 13. And right off the bat, we see two major instances of George just doing wonderful, heroic things to help out other people. He ends up saving his brother's life when he falls through a frozen pond. He also helps to save his boss. He works in the local drugstore and his boss, who is distraught upon hearing that his son has passed away, was um, in some way putting poison into pills, and obviously that would have ended badly in whatever way it played out, and George was able to step in and help him correct that situation. So even from very, very beginning, we see him helping other people. And from there, we fast forward. He is a college grad. He is back for his younger brother's high school graduation. We get to see a glimpse of his family which is, you know, a very wholesome kind of scene. It's in the Roaring Twenties, and we end up at a high school graduation dance party with a very famous scene where George gets to dance with the woman who will become his wife, Mary, who is played by Donna Reed. And they end up uh, in the swimming pool that is underneath the gym floor. And after that, there is a scene with... George and Mary, as they get to uh, start to fall in love, I think you could say. And um, that scene itself is soon interrupted with the news that his father has had a stroke and his father ends up passing away. His father was running the Bailey Building and Loan, which was a local business, which was the big competitor to the Ebenezer Scrooge type character of 
Mr. Potter, who is played by Lionel Barrymore. So the building alone is very much the underdog type of character within this story uh, against the rich and uh, greedy character of Mr. Potter. But anyway, his father, who runs it with his brother, uh, his father passes away. And what George ends up doing, again, is making a decision for other people. He gives up his trip in Europe and stays to run the building and loan because that's the only way that the board of directors is going to allow the building loan to continue and not fall into the hands of the evil Mr. Potter. So makes another decision for other people. And and we fast forward. George gets married to Mary, and then they actually are getting ready to go on their honeymoon, and there is a bank run. And everybody in the town who has money at the building and loan is completely frightened. They want to get in there and get their money. So what does George do? Again, he puts other people before himself. He goes in there, he takes the money that he had saved for his honeymoon, and he uses that to give everybody just a little bit of money so that they can um, survive, essentially. We fast forward a little bit more and see that George now has a family with Mary. They have four kids, and he is continuing to run the building and loan. There is a little bit of a montage sequence uh, a la, I'm sure, Frank Capra's uh, Days of War Department documentaries, but we get to see that George ends up staying at home during World War II. Other people go out fighting. One of his childhood friends becomes a captain of industry. Um, but he is staying home, uh, fighting the War of Bedford Falls, I think is might not be the exact wording, but something along those lines. And eventually we kind of catch up to where we had originally heard the prayers for George and found out that there was something that's wrong. And we find out that what happened was... His uncle, who is running the building and loan with him, who is, you know, a little bit forgetful at times, um, wonderfully played by the talented character actor Thomas Mitchell. So he ends up misplacing $8,000, which was critical to the financial um, continuance of the Bailey building and loan. He's about to deposit in the bank. He misplaces it. It actually ends up in the lap of Mr. Potter, the evil Mr. Potter. And this coincides with a bank examiner showing up at the building alone who would very soon realize if this $8,000 isn't recovered that the bank is in, uh, I'm not sure if, if it would be headed directly to bankruptcy or what, but there is the implication that George Bailey himself will be arrested for some sort of financial crime, fraud perhaps, and put in jail. So they try to find the money that is missing. They cannot do it. He starts to go deeper and deeper into this darkness. Uh, he starts to yell at his uncle. He has this tirade uh, at his home where he's yelling at his children. He yells at their um, teacher. He ends up breaking up so many of the you know small miniatures that he's made over the years back to his you know original aspirations of being an engineer, being a builder. He just breaks those up. He's just at the end of his rope. He goes to the local bar, Martinis. He has a couple drinks, and then he goes to the local bridge and is there contemplating suicide. And that is when we get uh, our 
wingless angel Clarence into the story. So he jumps into the water to save George, i.e. he does it so that George won't do it. And they start to get dried off. Clarence starts to tell George that he is his guardian angel and he's been sent here to save him. George certainly doesn't believe him. Um, But when George kind of throws out the notion that he wishes he never had been born in the first place, that's when Clarence, played by Henry Travers, he jumps on that particular statement and transports both of them into this alternate world where George gets to see what would have happened if he had, in fact, never existed. And I think you could um, really kind of draw the line at a few different points. Um, If you wanted to consider his descent into this um, really dark place as part of the noir uh, portion of the film, I think you could have started earlier. But Definitely, when we get to the point of this alternate reality, we are smack dab in the middle of film noir territory. So George gets to see what would have happened to this small town called Bedford Falls if he had never been there. And it really is a fairly brief sequence in terms of the length of the movie. It's only about 16 minutes if you are to start the clock when they first move into the alternate reality uh, to the time when they come back. But uh, not going to talk about that in too great a depth because I want to in a few minutes. But he ends up seeing that his life was, in fact, so important. It touched so many people throughout the town. And it would just be a terrible, terrible mistake for him to go ahead and commit suicide like he was contemplating in the first place. And it ends up coming back. He wishes so much to go back to his old life instead of this alternate reality. He does come back. Everybody in the town comes to his aid. His wife had gone out and told everybody what the situation was. They all came in, tried to give him whatever money they had. Also, his young friend who had made it big uh, in plastics, wires that he's willing to advance him up to $25,000. And we quickly see that the financial issue is resolved. And we kind of end with this really, really heartwarming scene in their house with everybody um, singing and making a toast to George, who is, as his brother puts it, the richest guy in town, not because of his financial situation, but because he has friends. And we get a little zoom in on the book that uh, Clarence had been carrying around with him, Tom Sawyer, and it's signed at the beginning of the uh, page. It says, Dear George, remember, no man is a failure who has friends. Thanks for the wings. And then we hear a little bell on the tree, which is the indication that Clarence did get his wings because he did a great job helping out George. And it ends there. So, so heartwarming and happy. Um, Personally, the ending still gets me. I still get goosebumps. Um, I cried when I watched it a couple days ago in preparation for this episode. And um, I think that that is the lasting um, takeaway that so many people have formed with this film and the message that goes along with it. And thus, we have the story of It's a Wonderful Life. However, since this is a film noir podcast, we are going to next take a zoom in on that noir segment and what happens in it and what that segment 
does for the ending and why that is so powerful and why we think that that is such an indication of what film noir does in general for anybody that watches it and then is, you know, brought back into their daily life. So let's take a deeper look at the noir segment of It's a Wonderful Life. And depending upon where you start it, again, uh, whether or not you would include the tirades he has against his family, um, the teacher, or whether you would start it right when they enter the alternate reality where he had never existed. Um, We're going to focus on the alternate reality at this point because that is absolutely you know, no, no question, uh, noir territory. And it begins first with George running into somebody from the town, uh, where he thought his car was and finds out that the name of the town is no longer Bedford Falls. It is Pottersville. He is still, you know, unsure of what the heck is going on. He thinks that he's either going crazy or the other person's going crazy, but very quickly we find out that indeed we are in this alternate reality and Bedford Falls doesn't exist. It is instead Pottersville. And very quickly we get to see that Pottersville is the, I think you could call it the nightmare noir version of Bedford Falls. And they they start to see that when they go to the town bar to get a drink. And right away it looks different. The people are acting different. They're dressed differently. The music is different. And the bartender is very abrupt and rude to both George Bailey and Clarence. George finds out that his friend Martini, who used to own the bar, does not own the bar anymore. In fact, it is the bartender who is running it. And then we have a very sad scene where the pharmacist from when George was a kid, comes into the front door of the bar and they call him a rummy. They squirt water into his face. They treat him uh, very badly. And uh, he does not know George when George kind of grabs him and asks him what's going on. And they find out that he went to prison for 20 years for poisoning a kid. And that is the direct reference back to the scene where George, when he's younger, actually stops that from happening. Um, He intervened when the poison was being put into the capsules. And since he had never existed, that terrible event did, in fact, happen in this alternate reality. So they end up getting thrown out of Nick's right into the snow. It's dark. It's Christmas Eve and more noir coming. And there's a brief scene outside the bar in the snow. And one thing to note in this scene, when Clarence is trying to reinforce that they are in fact in this new world where George never existed, the score changes dramatically and you get this shift into a noir style score that really just kind of gives you chills and you start to feel the darkness and despair of this situation. And especially as George is kind of somewhat coming to the realization that this crazy reality might actually be a real thing that he's witnessing. But ultimately, again, George declares Clarence as crazy, and we move into the center of town. And one of the very first shots of the entire film was a painted sign, you are now in Bedford Falls, and that has been replaced with a neon sign that says Pottersville. 
And as George walks down the street, in the place of all of the businesses and um, sort of quaint hometown kind of places that were in Bedford Falls, we have instead, we have bars and nightclubs, pool halls, pawn shops, uh, boxing gyms, strip clubs. And soon we get a scene where Violet, who is played by Gloria Graham, uh, who we saw a few times uh, in Bedford Falls, uh, she is instead being taken out of a dance hall. She is being arrested. She is yelling at the police officers, claiming that she knows all the big shots in town with, I think, the implication that she had turned into quite the promiscuous person amongst town. And she gets put into the police car. And from there, George goes over to the cab and gets in and is shocked that the cab driver, Ernie, who he has known his whole life, also does not know who he is. And in fact, Ernie thinks he is insane. And he flags down Bert, the cop played by Ward Bond. And uh, they end up at his home or what was his home address in Bedford Falls. And they see that it is a rundown house uh, like it was before uh, him and his wife, Mary, moved into it. And there is where we go into serious noir style. There's a shot of George kind of scrambling around the front of the broken down house and the spotlight that is on the cab has been directed towards him, kind of illuminating him against this rundown house in a very noir fashion. And then it quickly turns to a shot shooting from the house out at George's face, who is still on the porch, and we can't see George's face at all. There is no lighting behind the camera. He is completely backlit by that spotlight and we thus only see a shadow of him. The noir-style score continues as he jumps around to different rooms in the house with some serious noir stylistics. Lighting setup is casting some serious shadows on all the walls. We only see portions of the room that are lit. We only see portions of George as he's running through the house. The contrasts are very dramatic. There's a close-up on Jimmy Stewart where he has you know, kind of diagonal horizontal shadows cast across him. And soon we return to the shot looking out the front door. And instead we have Bert and Ernie, the original Bert and Ernie, as uh, Frank Capra Jr. quoted in one of the um, supplements to the DVD I watched. Uh, But the original Bert and Ernie are out there and they have the same spotlight backlighting where you can't see them and uh, you just see their silhouettes. George then escapes from both of them and makes his way to his parents' house, where instead there is a sign on the door that says Ma Bailey's Boarding House, and front door opens. His mother, who is played by Beulah Bondi, answers the door, does not know who George is, and she just has a different look, a different appearance, Um, looks very, very not beaten physically, but beaten emotionally. And we also find out in this interaction that George's uncle is in the insane asylum. He has been committed insane uh, ever since the Bailey building alone went out of business. And George soon turns around, 
hops down the front steps, and we see a close-up of Jimmy Stewart. He stands right in front of the camera lens, so you see his head that is encompassing the entire frame, and he does this incredible thing. He starts looking one way in a very slow turn until he finally is looking dead into the camera lens, and the lighting setup and the look on Jimmy Stewart's face is just outstanding. You can see that he is really just in the depths of madness. And quickly we turn back, we see Clarence again. He adds to the situation by just pointing out how impactful any person's life is and how many people are touched by one person's life, even when it's hard to realize it. And from there, they move to the next segment of the noir piece, where instead of going to Bailey Park, where George in the Bedford Falls version had helped many people of the town finance and build homes. Those homes are not there because he was not there to help them. Instead, it is a cemetery. And then we end up at the grave of Harry Bailey, his younger brother. George claims to Clarence that it absolutely can't be. And he was a war hero. He saved people. But no, Clarence reminds George that because he was not there when they were kids to save his brother, when he fell through the pond, he had unfortunately passed away. And thus, everybody that he had then saved in World War II had passed away as well. And again, we have a noir setup where we can only see certain pieces of the frame. A lot of the tombstones are blacked out from the back uh, moonlight uh, simulation lighting. And uh, we do end up with a zoom-in shot of the gravestone when George uncovers that, in fact, Harry's death date is listed as 1919, which was the year that the flashbacks began. And the final segment of the noir piece is when George finds out that his wife Mary never married, doesn't know who he is. They are back in the center of town, and she is screaming, uh, trying to get away from him. They end up in a bar, another, you know, really kind of seedy location, and she is, you know, screaming for help. He is trying to convince everybody that she's his wife, but nobody knows who he is, obviously, and he really just completely is now in, you know, his version of hell, essentially. And I think one thing to really, again, point out here is just the unbelievable acting performance of Jimmy Stewart in this noir segment. Frank Capra said that he wanted Jimmy Stewart for this part because of his versatility and his ability to do the dramatic side of this role. And it really kind of shows through here, especially. He ends up on the verge of tears. He ends up crying out for Clarence. He forces his way out of the bar, slugs the police officer, gets shot at. Um, funny enough, the bullets seem to actually knock out a few of the letters on the Pottersville Neon, which I think is a pretty interesting idea. And I don't know, perhaps it could be an interesting discussion about what that might symbolize. But eventually, George runs away. He gets back to the bridge. He really comes back into reality because he's just begging, begging, begging to go back to his life. He no longer wants to throw it away. He doesn't care about the situation he was in. He just wants to be back in his life. And that is when our neon noir nightmare ends, and we end up with the unbelievable ending. 
the one that just is so uplifting, so warming, so touching, and uh, it just has so much of this extra power because of the depths that George Bailey had just gone through in that noir segment. And it really just gets at this idea that perspective is everything and the contrast is necessary because essentially without one, the other doesn't really exist in the same form. It is only X as relative to Y. And you can only fully appreciate the wonderful aspects of life when you compare it to the dark noir kind of alternatives. And that really kind of gets us to the last piece, which I alluded to at the beginning, is a little bit on the philosophical, um, psychological kind of side. Also includes some, some theory and some opinion, but focused around the idea of what film noir does for people that view it. If this 15 or 16 minute noir segment of It's a Wonderful Life can just make that much of the difference on the ending and arguably propel this movie into the upper stratosphere of all film history and the hearts of so many people, what does noir mean in a larger context? Why do we watch these films that are downbeat, gloomy crime stories when we could watch something like The Wizard of Oz? And I think that at least my theory on this is that, again, it just gets at the comparison piece where you cannot fully appreciate one thing unless you see the complete opposite. And I do hope that that is something that we could potentially explore a little bit more. There really is such a great deal of phenomenal information about film noir already. There are several experts, there are great reference books, there are different uh, groups that, that talk about film noir in significant depth. And this isn't even the only film noir podcast out there. We're really hoping that it is a great introduction to people that want to learn more about it, get more involved in it, know what films they might want to see next and what to look out for them, and really kind of just get the ball rolling so that other people can get into the world of film noir that that some of us, um, myself included, just feel is so intriguing and complex and hopefully enjoy those films as well. That's really the whole goal here. Bring people together and honor these great films. But back to my, my point is that of all this terrific information that's out there about film noir already, one thing that at least we haven't seen discussed in great depth is kind of the why behind the popularity of film noir. There are a lot of people that just absolutely adore film noir, myself included, and it kind of gets you thinking, why do we want to see this stuff? It's the same kind of age-old question of, why do people enjoy watching horror movies? That's not something that's enjoyable. I, I mean, why would somebody ever put themselves through that? But it's a very similar kind of correlation here where we see these noir stories that are about the low parts of society and the low parts of humanity. And when we see that, especially if we get to see it in you know, a fictionalized narrative format, we get this glimpse into 
the exact opposite of, you know, the perfect life. We get to see the characters that are marginalized. We get to see the the dangerous places in the world. And that is just an eye opener to to us so that we can see the great things in life. At least that's my personal opinion on it. It's a reference point and it's a reference point that is artistic and beautiful at times. And it is a great option for anybody that likes to see the darker stories and um, doesn't necessarily want to, you know, go to the news, for instance, for those dark stories. They get to see it in a very interesting, artistic way built upon a very elaborate story kind of thing. So at least that's the the theory part of this discussion where where I'm kind of coming from. I think it very much relates to It's a Wonderful Life because of that contrast. And I think that that contrast in large part plays out in film noir in general when you compare it to all the other films that you can see and going back to your normal life after watching a noir picture. And I think that is just going to about do it. Um, obviously, we had a very narrow portion of this film to discuss in great depth, that 16 or so minute noir segment, but relating it in a larger context to the whole film, the impact that the film has, where that film sits in all of our hearts nowadays, and you know, making that comparison to noir in general, I think is the the big uh, piece that we wanted to convey in this episode. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, I hope you are. If you, if you are and are looking to help us out, we do have a Patreon uh, account set up for $5 a month. You can support the show, support the research, and as an added benefit, uh, we'll also have an AMA Ask Me Anything discussion board where you can ask any kind of questions you want. Film Noir is obviously the the target here, but if there's anything we can try and research uh, and talk about in terms of film in general, uh, it's certainly something that gets gets us going. Uh, love to, to do the research and then discuss it with other people. So you can post on there, get your, your questions addressed if we can speak to them. If not, we'll do our very best to lead you in the right direction. Uh, we also have a new Letterboxd account. Um, Letterbox, if you don't know, is kind of a social media platform for film lovers. And we set up a Shadows of Noir account on there. We put a few lists on there. We put links to our podcast episodes, links to articles on the website. And one other thing we did on there was we put what we kind of have in terms of a film noir database for the classic era of film noir roughly 1940-1960, but we have that list on there, and that is very much a compilation of a lot of the reference works that are out there in the existing form. We kind of put all those together into more of a in-depth, comprehensive database, at least the one that we use as we're going through trying to see all these noir pictures and learn as much as we possibly can. So it's a good reference point if you want to find some hard-to-find ones or see what you haven't seen yet. So you can always check that out as well on letterboxd.com and the Letterboxd app for that matter. So thank you all once again so very much. I hope everybody has a great holiday 
and uh, we're probably taking a little bit of a break. We'll see you back uh, in 2024 and uh, can't wait to continue on with more episodes. So thanks again. Take care, everybody. Bye.